Well, friends, as you know, I have been spending, so far, the season of Lent this year preaching a sermon series that I'm calling Making Ready for Supper Time, in which I am especially intending to focus in on the meaning of Holy Communion, which we're going to be celebrating together every Sunday uh, through this season of Lent this year. And I brought along with me today an image of the Last Supper by a Japanese artist by the name of Soichi Watanabe that's called, We Are All One in Jesus. This image was featured several years ago by the Overseas Ministries Studies Center at Princeton Seminary. And when I first ran across it over a month or so ago as I was planning for this series, it struck me in a very special sort of way. There are, of course, thousands upon thousands of depictions of the Last Supper out there, and we'll see several more of them before this sermon series is over. But in this one, Jesus and his disciples are gathered around there in semicircle, all postures, all bodies positioned towards the center. And it seems to me that there is a special sort of attention being asked for here to, to attention. To attention that exists on the one hand between the differences that are among those disciples gathered around there, that great crew assembled for this meal, and on the other hand, the oneness, the oneness of that bread, the oneness of that jug and of that cup, the oneness even of that lamp, that singular light that gives light to that gathering. Oneness versus manyness, you might say. One loaf of bread there broken in half, one jug of wine and one cup to go with it. One light that gives one shared radiance to their meal. And yet also, every single one of those nondescript heads are a slightly different color. No two of those bodies there are in the exact same position. Some of them are close to the table. Some stand far off. Some are standing, some are kneeling. Oneness and manyness. Manyness brought together and held together in oneness. What an interesting reflection on what Holy Communion means. What Holy Communion was instituted to do. What important work, what holy work, and yet what challenging work, all at the same time. Last week I began this series in 1 Corinthians 11 with the most surface level of all of the many issues that get raised there in that passage. I talked last week about the issue of their sharing, or of their not sharing, as the case might be. They're not sharing of this feast of the Lord's Supper that is in some large part defined, according to the Apostle Paul, by the sharing. 
And if you remember what I focused on last week, it was the parts of this passage that we read a portion of again today, especially where we hear about some going hungry and others getting drunk. And Paul's opening up of that really big, really important question about whether the Lord's Supper done in this way is really the Lord's Supper at all. And what I hope to have impressed on you the most last week is what we might call the the ethics of the table. The ethics of the table, that part of what the Lord's Supper is and is instituted to be that is training for us and formation for us for the life that Christ has called us all to live. We always share at this table because a big part of what it's for is to teach us together how to be Christ's church. Well, closely intertwined with with these ethics of the table is what I want to call today the people of the table. That is, not just what the Lord's Supper trains us to do, but also who it forms us to be. The people of the table are a church And the church is the people around the table. The table and the Lord's Supper upon it, in fact, tells us and shows us just what the church actually really is. And it's supposed to be. And so I want to take one half step today beyond the ethics of the table to unpack a little bit about what we call ecclesiology, or the nature of the church. And how that nature and how that character of our very life are here to be discovered and renewed together around this table. Every time we gather. Every time we celebrate the meal. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but I will. How many of you have ever had a bad experience with a community before? Mm-hmm, Okay. How many of you have ever had a bad experience with church before? Well, you're not alone. I have had both myself. But I wanted to share today one of my experiences in particular that could almost be a study in community gone wrong. It was my second grade soccer team. You have never ever heard me mention my second grade soccer team before, because I frankly struggle to find anything redemptive about that experience, and part of me has totally blocked out that memory. The blistering, hot Florida sun on days that were so bright it was hard to see, often on torn up fields, kicking up dust, having that dust mix in with the sweat, awful experience. Faces, bright, hot, red, screaming, where in the world is my free snow cone today? And perhaps worst of all, the A-team kids versus the B-team kids. Ooh. And I was one of the B-team kids for sure. I definitely had no idea how to spread out and pass the ball. No idea how to play the game, or even a vision for what this game really was, 
if I got good contact with the ball once in the game, pelted it across the field, no matter whether it was from the other team or from my own teammates, I was satisfied and the day was a success. I have one vivid memory of the one and only time I can ever remember being put in the goalie and I got my hands on the ball and I just pelted that ball over to where all of the other team was standing and I was I was happy because it felt like a good kick and all my teammates were like, ah, oh. there, goes, there goes John handing the ball over to the other team again. The last season of soccer that I ever played, that is the season that I decided that this sport wasn't for me, we had a couple of real showboats on the team that year that, that were as toxic to be around as they were good at the game. Several times after those games, they would ridicule and, and publicly call out their teammates in ways that were just divisive and over the top. Even when we won the game, they didn't get the ball enough. But if we lost, though, it was calling out whose fault it was and who messed up on which plays in a very public sort of way. And I remember after one particular game, the whole team got embroiled in this angry shouting match over who was to blame for that day's loss. And it was ugly. And it was hurtful. It was embarrassing. And I was done. Somehow, that dynamic in that team was able to, to take a team that year and make us into a bunch of individuals. I call that a study in community gone wrong because all of the team relationship developing in there were moving in the wrong direction that season. Instead of taking a bunch of kids that that didn't know each other on day one and teaching them all how to, how to play together, how to organize their strategies together, and, and how to enjoy one another's presence and play the game together. That team that year left worse than we began. Sort of like Paul saying to that Corinthian church here today, that they left the Lord's Supper worse than they began. I want you to notice a couple of different things about what both of our scripture readings put before us this morning. First, I want you to see that both of these passages here today, each in their own way, express a concern for the health and the integrity of that collective body called the church. Concern for the health and the integrity of that collective body and that in both of these passages, the health of the body has everything to do with communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul voiced his concern there in verse 18 for the fact that, that there are divisions among you. He says right after that, that and to some extent I believe it, of course he believes it. He has just spent ten long chapters lamenting and excoriating them for all of the many inventive ways they have found to be divided from one another. And there is still more to come in the ensuing chapters. As I said last week, it is no small part. In no small part, it's their, their very way of practicing 
communion, their way of not sharing the meal that has intensified these very divisions. And beyond the ethics of it, there's an even deeper level of crisis in the back of this passage. Is this gathering with all of these divisions really still one church? Or maybe to put the question even better, is this gathering of the faithful with all of their divisions and all of its divisiveness still participating in the one church? Paul certainly writes with the hope and intention that it could reshape their life and restore their unity around the table. In Luke's telling of the Last Supper here today, we we hear included toward the end of this passage mention of a betrayal here around this table fellowship. We know that to be Judas Iscariot, of course, but, but it is no small matter in this passage that they're gathered around this table experiencing this betrayal, is it? That someone among this fellowship in light of all that they have been through and all that they are about to face, has broken trust, has conspired to undermine the integrity of that trust and of that gathering. That someone would sit at that gathering and partake in that meal and still intend to carry out their plans all the way through. What a crisis. It does damage to what has been assembled And this passage in Luke on the Lord's Supper ends with a lament and in tragedy. And in light of of that, in light of that first point, there is also a second thing that I would like you to notice here about these two passages, especially regarding the two narrations here of the events of the Lord's Supper itself. You know, what you can't see in English translations of the Bible is that all of the U's, all of the U's here in both of these passages that come from Jesus' mouth in, in both versions are really plural U's. You alls, you might say. This is my body that is for you all, he says. You all do this in remembrance of me. You all do this as often as you all drink it. And you all proclaim together the Lord's death until He comes. This is for you all. Something that you all do and that you all are bound together as one by. And what he means there when he says that in doing this, you all proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, is that you're coming together. And your participating in this together is itself an announcement to the world of the forgiveness and reconciliation purchased through Christ's own death that you all share in. You all in celebrating this meal together well, put that on display. You preach the sermon. You exhibit that. Announce that to the world through your collective action 
around the table. Holy communion, you see, is in no small part a call to remember and a call to live into who God has made us. You all have been made part of that. You know, St. Augustine, who who was famous and significant for a lot of different reasons in church history, was, was also really influential in helping the church to to understand that its own self-understanding, our own self-understanding, our ecclesiology is most deeply rooted in our practice around the table of Holy Communion. He said at one point in one of his sermons in the lead-up to Easter, that to, to he told the church to be what you see and to receive who you are. You see one loaf of bread around that table. Be one bread. You see one cup there as well. Be the one cup. Be what you see. And receive as a gift what you are, which is one church. You are one as a gift from God. This church is in the unity of our own making. We receive it as part of the gift of our baptism. Receive what you are because Christ Himself is the one who initiated the meal and who offers us the host. None of us can build this on our own. We receive membership into this unity as part of God's grace. Be what you see and receive who you are. That's why in our communion liturgy, the prayer is prayed, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here, and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, so that we might be the body of Christ, redeemed by His blood. Make us to be what we see, and to receive who we are, in other words, so that we can be that in ministry to the world. Church, God wants to fashion an entire people around a table. And when we come to the table, we come in part to be fashioned into a people, to be what we see and to receive who we are. We come to more closely resemble this image held before us today. This kind of image with all of its differences and distinctivenesses, yes, but most of all with a manyness brought together and held together in Christ's oneness. We know that communities are fragile. We've experienced it. Human communities break, and human communities are riddled with all of the messiness and dysfunctions that we all carry around on the inside of us all the time. Yes, even churches. But Holy Communion, Holy Communion calls us not to build communities as if they were something of our own making, but rather to receive it 
to receive it and to walk forward in it as a grace. To be what we see. To receive who we are. This is another one of those themes on which fasting and feasting, it seems to me, complement one another in a profound kind of way. Because both of them, both of them invite a prayerful reflection on us and on who we are together. Communion invites that when we gather together around the table and share a feast, of course. Fasting does that when we call to mind in our fasting that we are not the only ones in the world going without. Last week's prayer focus for for our Lenten fast was, was around the theme of consumption, if you remember. How both the feast and the fast challenge us to revisit how we use, how we steward, how we share God's resources. This week's prayer focus for the feast day and for the fast day is around the theme of solidarity. Around the theme of community, especially with those who live without, with the poor. Both our feasting, as well as our fasting, remind us that we have been made as a grace, part of a larger community that is bigger than our own little worlds. And so this week, this week I invite you to include that as part of your fasting prayer focus. We, the who we are, both as we gather and as we pray in solidarity in this Lenten season. The community that we share in our fasting with those who have less, with those who go without, who suffer from deprivation, who live in need, and in a spirit of yearning. That is our Lenten prayer focus. That is part of who this table is calling us to remember and calling us to be. May God unite our hearts and minds in prayers with theirs in this Lenten season. And all of God's people said, Amen.